Welcome to Picture Voices, the interview series conducted by faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is David Salem Sayers, and today it is my pleasure to be joined by my dear friend and colleague, Zachary Foster, a historian of Palestine and public intellectual who uses various online platforms to communicate with the broader public about the historical and current issues concerning the region. Zach joins us today to talk about a very current issue, namely the incursion by Hamas into Israeli territory on October 7, 2023. Hello, Zach, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Zach, if I'm not mistaken, you were in the region yourself until very recently. Can you tell us anything about your impressions? Can you tell us anything about sort of the situation on the ground now as far as you understand it? So let's talk about Gaza before October 7th. Everything changed on October 7th, so let's just take a step back. Beginning in 2007, Israel imposed a blockade on Gaza. And for the past 16 years, very few people have entered or exited the Gaza Strip. And that's why it's oftentimes referred to as an open-air prison. You have a population of 2.3 million Palestinians, 50% of whom are unemployed, 90% of whom do not have access to fresh drinking water. You have 80% of people in the Gaza Strip dependent on food aid. There's no economy. You, know, you can't export or import anything. You cannot lead a normal life. And so that is the situation in Gaza. You have an electricity crisis. For the past 10 years, people get between two and six hours of electricity per day, depending on how much electricity Israel allows into the Strip. Remember, Israel uh, controls Gaza. It controls six of the seven land borders. Egypt colludes with Israel to keep the seventh closed. Israel controls the maritime coastland. Israel controls the airspace. Israel controls the groundwater. Israel controls the telecommunication networks. Israel controls uh, internet access via those telecommunication networks. Israel uh, um, also controls the population registry. If you want to move from one place in, the, in Gaza to another place, Israel um, has control of that. Um, so Israel has almost complete control of the Gaza Strip from the outside. Um, and so that has been the status quo for 16 years now. In addition to that, Israel has waged five wars on Gaza. The first one in 2008, uh, the second one in 2012, then again in 2014, then again in 2018, 2019 with the Gaza March protests, and then again in 2021. And now, of course, the most recent one, which began four days ago. In those five wars, Israel slaughtered almost 4,000 Palestinians. And in return, Hamas and other Islamic and other militant organizations in Gaza killed a couple hundred Israelis, maybe about 150. So the death ratio, um, strictly speaking, by the numbers, is something like 18 or 19x. For every one Israeli killed by Palestinians, Israel kills 18 to 19 Palestinians. Okay, so that that's kind of from a bird's eye view, just taking a step back. Um, that is the situation in Gaza. You have a mental health crisis. The vast majority of children have never 
um, have never lived life not under siege and not under war. You know, imagine being 16, 17, 18 years old and having experienced five wars. And beyond the wars, in between the wars, you have little spouts of violence when 10, 20, 30 Palestinians are killed or 50, 60, 70 Palestinians are killed. These aren't even included in the war counts. Right. And most flare ups happen literally on a monthly basis. Right. And I mean, even when there is no direct violence that is being experienced, as you were saying, you could hardly call this kind of life a normal life. Because as you were saying, well, firstly, you're uh, reeling from the trauma uh, of, uh, of of the situation that surrounds you, the war situation or the violence situation, plus uh, your most basic needs are not being met. Uh, there is no uh, way to talk about a, a, a regular, a normal, uh, an acceptable form of existence for children or for adults. The situation has been totally intolerable. And the United Nations, I believe it was in 2010, published a report that said Gaza will be unlivable by 2020. Unlivable by 2020. So that was three years ago. And that was three years ago. Exactly right. You have a situation where people have no hope for the future, total despair. And in a situation where you have total despair, where you have no uh, work opportunities, where you have no plausible belief that you're, you, ha you can make something of yourself in your future, that your future is grim and bleak and dark. Where the only thing that is going to happen to you is death and, and, and destruction. Where that, when you have a, a population of 2.3 million people, half of whom are children, by the way, who are growing up in this type of environment, that breeds an incredible amount of, of, of trauma and hostility and anger and pent up rage. And that's what, but that's what we saw on October 7th. Well, uh, so this is, uh, uh, of course, uh, I mean, you, you described the you, you described the situation, the, the living situation, if we can call that really a living, the situation in Gaza. And um, you led it up into what has happened now. Uh, it, am I to understand that you uh, that you view this, uh, uh, these conditions that these people are living under as some kind of justification for the violence that has occurred? I reject violence against civilians, no matter whether that violence comes from the, the state of Israel or Hamas or ISIS or anybody else. Okay, there's never any justification to kill innocent people. Um, I think it's important when trying to make sense of the situation, when trying to understand how people could commit these gruesome acts of violence. Um, I think it's important to try and understand what could have possibly led someone to do such a thing. Okay, when 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 his when Jewish historians of the Holocaust try and make sense of how it is that the, the population of Germany in the 1930s accepted Nazism, they're not justifying Nazism. They're trying to understand how it is that this regime in in in, in Germany came to power and how it it it, it came to, to to gain acceptance within German society. You're not justifying it by trying to understand it. I mean, if so. No historian could study any act of, of violence or any evil act of, you know, of violence in history. Otherwise, by trying to understand why it happened, you'd be justifying it, right? So, I mean, this idea that by trying to understand a person's motives, you're justifying those motives, I think is absolutely insane. Yeah, um, um, I have to say I agree with you there, Zach. Um, the so uh, talking about um, the 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 current situation, or talking about what led up to the current situation, Zach, um, um, is this uh, 
incursion by Hamas uh, into the Israeli territory, the following uh, retaliation, if if you may want to call it that or whatever you want to call it on the side of Israel. Uh, is this something, is there something new about this? Or are we just witnessing a, a kind of a, 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 a slightly different reiteration of uh, what has been happening, as you were saying, uh, for many, many years so far? Uh, or is there something about this that you would describe as a, as a, as a turning point? Well, this is definitely a turning point. There's no question about that. Um, why is it a turning point? Well, I think for a long time, Israelis were basically indifferent to the situation in Gaza. Of course, you had leftists. Of course, you had activists. Of course, you had anti-occupation and anti-siege and blockade activists. But those people represented a small minority of the Israeli public and had very little impact or influence. And I think part of the reason why there was so much indifference to the crisis in Gaza, uh, to the food crisis, the water crisis, the health crisis, the electricity crisis, the economic crisis, I think part of the reason there was so much indifference was because Israelis never had to think about it. For them, you know, Gaza was locked up. You know, the fence was secure. Um, I had uh, a friend tell me who uh, served in the Israeli army that basically the, the the Israeli army for um you know for, for since 2007 2008 when it imposed a blockade and when it you know really sealed shut Gaza Strip you have multiple Israeli soldiers staring at you know a six foot part of the fence 24 seven day and night in addition to all the sensors and all the motion sensors and all the barbed wire and the the, the 150 meters on both sides of the fence which is a no go zone and they'll shoot you if you even enter that area so. In addition to all these crazy security measures, you know, they have multiple people staring at each segment of the of the 21 mile fence. Okay, so I think for Israelis, this was um, this was a shock because never in their wildest dreams would they have imagined that not only would Hamas be able to breach the fence, but they would be able to send hundreds of Hamas, potentially even thousands of Hamas. Well, we don't know the numbers. Everything's breaking in real time right now. So you know, please take with a grain of salt any number I'm sharing with you because we're constantly getting updated counts. And and so, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but potentially thousands of Hamas militants entering Israel, entering Israeli towns uh, along, along the border of Gaza. You know, slaughtering hundreds and hundreds of people at a music festival. You know, babies, women, children, innocent people, the elderly, just total lack of regard for um, for human life. Okay. For Israelis, this was unthinkable. Totally unthinkable. Okay. Um, you know, so I think that obviously this changed for Israel. Israel is no longer the um, invincible power that it thought it was. Um, I think Netanyahu has a lot to answer for to the Israeli public. We know that for the past year, uh, for the past nine months or so, there have been uh, protests against the government every week, Saturday night in Tel Aviv and elsewhere around the country. And, and as a result of that protest movement, um, that a number of I mean, many dozens, if not hundreds, I don't know the exact count, but many hundreds of Israeli reserve officers said they're not going to serve a reserve duty because they reject this judicial reform, quote unquote, that the government is trying to pass, which is essentially trying to cancel the judiciary, trying to remove um, judicial oversight over government decisions. 
And so the government was incredibly fractured. The military, as a result of the decisions taken by the current Israeli government, uh, it was bringing about a total collapse um, within the Israeli military hierarchy. You had generals, Israeli generals coming out and saying, you know, this government is risking Israeli security. Okay, so the warnings were all there. I mean, why do you? And so I think uh, for Israel, Netanyahu's done. I I can't imagine he's going to survive this. You know, maybe in the short term, that there's enough kind of uh, brouhaha around, you know, the war and around unity uh, rhetoric of, you know, we're all we're all together in this. Right. So, so maybe in the short term, he'll, he'll be able to outflank his, his opponents and, and survive for the next few weeks or a few months or for however long this war lasts. But in the long term, I think Bibi's done. Um, so I think that it will be, uh, I would expect that to be you know, a real shift in Israeli society. I mean, BB has ruled the country for 21 years, you know, so um, that's going to be a major shift. I think um, now you're seeing Hezbollah just entered the fray literally as we speak. You have reports coming out in just the past hour that Hezbollah has fired dozens, if not hundreds of rockets into Israel. I can't recall the last time we saw a multi-front war between Hezbollah, potentially Syria looks like it might enter. Um you know, so a multi-front war is not something Israel has seen in a long time. Um, and then, of course, when we when we talk about Gaza, Gaza's never seen this level of despair and destruction. We're talking thousands of rocket attacks in a 24, 48-hour period. You know, we are, the death toll in Gaza is already, I think, over 1,200 in just two, three days. I mean, the last time we saw that many deaths was 2014, and that war lasted 54 days. So in three days, Israel has committed the same amount of damage and, and destruction and death that it that it committed in 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 you know uh, five weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks. So um, and, and and beyond that, you know, if you go back to those previous wars in twenty oh in two thousand eight and twelve and fourteen and two thousand twenty one, and you looked at and you looked at Israel's um, strikes, they were much more targeted and precise. You'd have a building here. That would be that would be uh, destroyed, but then the surrounding buildings would be remain intact. There was an, at least some attempt at precision. There was not an attempt to preserve civilian life, um, but there was an attempt at military uh, targeting and precision. That's gone. I mean, if you if you see the drone footage coming out of Gaza, it's you're talking entire blocks, entire neighborhoods, you know, completely leveled. No attempt whatsoever, zero attempt to preserve any loss of life. To the contrary. The goal is to cause as much death and as much destruction as possible. You know, that's why uh, Israeli defense minister announced a total siege on Gaza. That's why he called Gazans human animals. That's how he said we're blocking food and water and medicine. And guess what? You block food and matter. You block food and water and medicine and all electricity when when you have a very particular goal in mind, which is to cause death and destruction and despair. This isn't about putting an end to how the Hamas right. military infrastructure right. or even its political infrastructure. It's imposing uh, a huge amount of death. Right. It's, it's, it's basically an attempt to, to be able to say or somehow, um, I mean, this reads to me as an attempt uh, at saying to one's own population, look at how mighty we are, look at uh, what kind of, uh, uh, you know, influence we have, don't think that we are weak, we are strong, etc., etc. I mean, kind of uh, this, this sort of attack, um, 
you know, it has, um, I mean, the, the reason I ask about kind of perceptions or, uh, or, or a game changer or, 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 or some kind of uh, uh, shift like that is also because I'm unsure uh, whether the, the escalating situation offers any kind of hope beyond uh, further polarization. Because as you said, that if, if, uh, if uh, perceptions in Israeli society are shifting or perceptions in, inside Gaza among the Palestinians in, who are trapped, locked inside Gaza are shifting, is there anywhere for these perceptions to shift except in the direction of further radicalization, uh, a more paranoia, uh, uh, increased uh, obsession with security and retaliation on the side of the Israelis and increased uh, resentment and hatred on the side of the Palestinians living in Gaza? There's no question that this war is a dramatic escalation in, in the conflict and the occupation and the siege. I mean, I... I, I I wish I had more optimistic uh, news to share, but I can't imagine a worse situation for Israel or Palestine right now. I mean, how do you go back? There, uh, you know, there's no going back now. I mean, what is Israel going to reoccupy Gaza? Are they going to send troops to patrol the streets of Gaza? Are they going to try and kill all Ham all fifty thousand Hamas members? What, mm -hmm. They're going to try to kill all you know, million Hamas supporters in Gaza? Like, well, do they think that if they kill all the Hamas militants, there won't be five times as many of them that right. are uh, want to pick up arms after this right. genocidal war? I mean, give me a break. Right. I mean, uh, one thing that I was thinking of while you, while you said that, Zach, was 9-11. Um, uh, uh, because obviously we know what happened after 9/11. The, the United States went and found justifications in in this uh, event uh, in order to occupy uh, 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 Iraq or to invade Iraq, to invade Afghanistan, to occupy these uh, these territories. And we all know how that ended in the end, uh, uh, very ignominiously. Uh, but uh, surely somewhere, somehow, someone along the way benefited from. Uh, what transpired. So who, I mean, if the populations of Israel and Palestine at this moment are only standing to, 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 to receive more hurt and to, to, to be uh, uh, worse off than before because of what's happening, who is benefiting? This is a lose-lose-lose situation. There are no winners here. Um, I can't think of any winners. Zero. In that case, let me sort of um, expand the range of that question a little bit and uh, and uh, um, ask you a question that sort of leads us a little bit further into into the history of the conflict, if you will. Uh, because I asked who is benefiting from the current situation. What is what has overall? I mean, what has been the benefit or what has been the justification? Very stupid question, but like, what has been the justification to keep literally millions of people locked up for years on end, uh, controlling their most basic needs and supplying them uh, at will or cutting them off at will? What has been the benefit or what has been the interest in doing this? I think on the Israeli side, the justification and the interest has changed, has evolved over time. I think initially, at first, when Israel first imposed the blockade on Gaza back in 2007-2008, um, the idea was to punish the people of Gaza for electing Hamas. 
right? There was a free and fair election in 2005 or six. Um, it was Hamas versus Fatah. Fatah represented by Mahmoud Abbas, who was the heir to Yasser Arafat, representing Fatah and the PLO, uh, an organization that had proven itself to be incredibly inept at, governments, at governance, incredibly corrupt, billions of dollars going missing, um, officials stealing huge amounts of money from the people, awarding contracts to their friends and family members. Um, so an incredibly corrupt government. What do you know they lost? On the other side was Hamas. What did Hamas have going for it? It, it, it invested tens of millions of dollars into social programs, educational programs, welfare programs, after-school activities for kids, you know, religious programming. So Hamas was investing in Palestinian society for decades. They also represented a militant, um, you know, they, they represented militancy. They represented a militant resistance to the state of Israel, which has long ha had widespread support within the Palestinian population. You know, they represented a more religious uh, approach to um, politics, which is, again, very, uh, you know, 85% of Palestinians are Muslim and many of them are religious. So Hamas, uh, you know, had many, many reasons why it won. Um, but basically they won free and fair election. There were Western observers widely agreed and accepted that this organization, which was perceived to be uncorrupt, which was perceived to be a benefactor to the Palestinian people, and which was also perceived to be a militant organization, um, won. And the result of that was that um, Israel imposed a blockade on Gaza and based on the belief that they could punish the people of Gaza. They could put them on a diet. And that was actually um, the that was actually implemented, right? So they, they calculated how many calories does each Gaza need every day to survive. Let's give them just enough to survive. Let's make sure we let in just enough food aid so that they're not starving. Um, and so the idea was to put, put Gazans on a diet. And then every few years... Once, uh, you know, Hamas committed some, you know, a, a, a barrage attack on Israel with rockets, or maybe they attempted to breach the, the border fence, maybe they did nothing at all. Every few years, uh, Israel would go in and, this is Israeli rhetoric, by the way, if we would go in and, quote, mow the lawn, treating Gazans, treating Palestinians, treating two million people as overgrown grass. And that was the Israeli attitude for years. And that's a total point, I think, um, you know, the mentality shifted a little bit. You have a, a quote already from uh, Betsel Smotry, who, who is currently the finance minister uh, in, in the current government. And he made a comment, I think it was back in 2017, and now I think this is actually a pretty mainstream view within the Israeli establishment, at least up until October 7th. But he said that Hamas was an asset, while the, while the PLO, Fatah, um, and the Palestinian Authority was a liability. Why was Hamas an asset? How did Hamas turn, you know, become the enemy Going from the enemy to the asset. Well, I think what Israel realized over time was that Hamas was Israel's greatest savior um, in terms of Israel's ability to pursue its policies during the West Bank, of, of confiscating land in the West Bank, of expanding its settlements in the West Bank, of expanding its Israeli-only apartheid roads in the West Bank, of expanding its occupation infrastructure in the West Bank. So basically, I think what what Israelis realized, especially in the upper echelon of, of political power, was that every time there's a spat between Israel and Hamas, the entire West, the entire world uh, condemns Hamas for attacking civilians, which they do. 
because they can't, they don't have the technology to fire rockets at Israeli military installations, so they fire rockets into Israel indiscriminately, targeting civilians. And so because of that, Israel realized Hamas was a blessing. Was that it gave Israel carte blanche to pursue its, its the, the to pursue the thing it really cared about, the thing it really wanted, which was the total Judaization and control of Jerusalem, and the total control of the West Bank. And it realized that you know, in order for it to have the West Bank, in order for the West to turn a blind eye to its policies of apartheid and ethnic cleansing and occupation of the West Bank, that it had to make this small sacrifice of a, of having this you know nuisance on its the south the western border. Um, and in the end, you know, up until October seventh, Israel never suffered more than fifteen or twenty casualties, even in the worst conflicts, in the worst wars in two thousand eight and two thousand fourteen. No more than a few dozen Israelis were killed. So it was basically a non-issue. You know, of course, the southern towns of Sterot and Ashkelon and those kibbutzim on the border, of course, they lived in terror because every, you know, few months there'd be rockets flying over them. So they, they had a huge amount of trauma. But for the vast majority of Israelis, Gaza was a non-issue. It didn't affect them. And, and to the government, if it didn't affect the vast majority of Israelis' day-to-day lives, it was an asset because it gave Israel the ability and the power and the Western support it needed to pursue its policies in the West Bank that it wanted. And so I think ultimately that has been the case up until October 7th, and obviously everything changed just a few days ago. So, uh, Zach, um, that also goes some way towards answering my earlier question about who actually benefits from this escalation of violence. But what makes you believe that um, uh, 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 this escalation of violence that we're witnessing right now is not just uh, an amplification of the trend that you that you just outlined for us, namely that you know Hamas is a is a is a very uh, um, convenient excuse for Israel to take uh, any extreme measures uh, for the state of Israel to take any extreme measures that it might want to take in pursuing its uh, uh, colonialist policies in 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 these uh, in the region. Uh, uh, why would this uh, be something? The the, uh, the 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 events that are unfolding right now. Why would they be something that counteracts this trend rather than something that reinforces this trend? Well, I think it's it's, it's owing to the magnitude of the death and destruction, despair that has been inflicted on Israel and the Israeli population over the past few days. Right? I mean, in previous conflicts in two thousand eight, two thousand fourteen, and two thousand twenty one. Most Israelis were, 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 for the most part, unaffected by those wars. Sure, you had uh, reserve duties, reserve units called up. Sure, you, you had ground troops that, that suffered casualties. Sure, you had an occasional civilian here and there die from a rocket attack. But again, for the most part, the Israeli civilian population remained pretty much unaffected by those wars. In fact, if anything, it was much more so the, the, you know, the attacks inside Israel and inside the West Bank settlements by Palestinian militants, stabbing attacks, you know, uh, car rammings, um, uh, you know, bombs, shootings, gun attacks, right? So those were the, the, the attacks that really Israelis feared. And they actually, for the most part, came from the West Bank, not from Gaza. Gaza was, for the most part, forgotten. The Israelis never think about Gaza. Um, you lock them up in prison, throw away the key, don't have to think about it. Whereas in the West Bank, obviously, because of the Selman enterprise and because Israel is so deeply entrenched in the West Bank, um, it's so much easier for West Bank Palestinians that want to commit um, acts of violence against Israelis to do so because it's such a porous border. It's so easy for them to cross into Israel. And so, you know, Gaza was a non-issue. But obviously, when you have hundreds, if not thousands, of Hamas militants entering Israeli towns, you know, committing these gruesome acts of violence that they committed, 
I mean, that changed everything, right? No longer is it, you know, uh, some something off in a distant land, 20 kilometers away behind, you know, a, a wall that I, and so I never need to think about it. Now they're in my towns and villages and cities slaughtering innocent people. And that changed everything. And so the, the government now, I think, Will, will eventually, I mean, face a huge amount of criticism. You've all know Harari just published an op-ed um, in, I believe, Ynet or one of the Israeli publications basically saying, you know, Netanyahu needs to go. You heard Thomas Friedman, uh, the New York Times columnist, basically say, yeah, the number one reason this happened is because of Bibi. He blamed Bibi ahead of Hamas for what happened. Why? Because of the the fault lines and the divisions taking place right now within Israeli society as a result of the protest movement and a result of the defections from the military and a result of the distractions in the government. The government is focused on the West Bank, Smotrich and Ben Gvir. Uh, they're obsessed with the West Bank, of colonizing the West Bank, of expanding settlements in the West Bank. All attention is focused on expanding settlement enterprise and ethnic cleansing and control in the West Bank and Jerusalem. And so they've completely taken their eyes off Gaza, right? So uh, there will be an accounting, and Israelis will, I, I imagine, hold Bibi Netanyahu to account for the, the, the security failure. So I, I think this is very different, very, very different from, from uh, previous escalations of violence. Basically, Zach, what you're saying makes me think that there might be, or you're hoping that there might be a paradigm shift in thinking within Israeli society as to um, the acceptability or as to the to the feasibility of uh, proceeding any further with the tactic of using Hamas of using Hamas as an asset basically in order to carry out certain uh, political and military uh, objectives I think that's correct the the era where Israeli political officials believe that Hamas is an asset ended on October 7th there's no question about that. Um, what happens next? Who knows? I mean, uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm I, I, if, I, if I had to bet on, 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 on a certain direction or another direction, I, I would expect things to get much worse. I mean, violence breeds more violence. The cycle of violence. We've all heard that phrase thrown around before. But I think I, I can't possibly be optimistic for, for what happens next. Not in Gaza, not in the West Bank, and not in Israel proper. Um, it's dark days are ahead. Um, Zach, uh, maybe you can uh, contextualize for us a little bit and wrapping up because, um, I mean, you, uh, you are approaching this issue not just from the perspective of a, of a, of a, of an analyst of current affairs, but you are actually a historian of Palestine. So maybe, uh, you want to put this what is happening right now into a broader context, uh, into a broader historical context overall, in order to uh, maybe also give us some clues as to what may lie ahead. I think for the past 56 years, the belief was that Israel would be able to maintain permanent control over Palestinians. And that basically they would be able to do that without all that much resistance. I think that era is over. And we're entering into a new era, and it's anyone's guess what direction things go. Um, does the West apply pressure on Israel to uh, end its land confiscations and end the home demolitions and end the siege on Gaza and, um, and, 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 and end the settlement expansion? And who knows? Um, do the, does the Israeli public put pressure on the government uh, to, to reverse course? Who knows? I think what we've seen in the past is that 
you know, violence, especially after a flare-ups of violence, you tend to see an entrenchment. It's, it's, it's the, the more conservative, the more reactionary elements that tend to do well. This is what happened in 2021 after the May uh, a war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Hamas had uh, experienced a surge in popularity. Why is that? Well, the same is true in Israel. You know, after that war, the right wing has only strengthened in Israel. And so I, I can't imagine that this will that this war is somehow going to turn out good for the progressive elements within Palestinian and Israel society. And so I would anticipate things to become more violent. I would anticipate the occupation to intensify. I would expect the right wing in Israel to feel emboldened and strengthened, uh, to impose more lockdowns, to strengthen the tighten the siege on Gaza, um, to confiscate more land, to expand the settlements. I think everything's going to get worse from here. I wish I had a more optimistic message, but I'm very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach, uh, in I mean, you know, the, I I I believe that uh, your pessimism is completely understandable given the current situation. And what makes it even more difficult is the sort of disconnect in uh, in perceptions of what's happening right now. I mean, on the one hand, obviously we have very uh, different messages about what is transpiring right now uh, uh, going around in, in in Gaza itself and in Israel itself. But also beyond that, for instance, as somebody who speaks Turkish and who looks at the Turkish media, I can see um, that the Turkish media, for instance, is pretty much unanimously uh, uh, on uh, uh, reporting on things uh, from uh, the perspective of the Palestinians in Gaza, whereas when you look at a, a lot of Western outlets, you have uh, pretty much the opposite direction, right? Uh, very little coming from that perspective and a lot coming from the Israeli perspective. Uh, what do you have to say about this sort of this disconnect in discourse in the global media so that like one part of the world seems to be experiencing uh, by proxy a completely different conflict from another part of the world. Well, I think that's been, it's been the case for a long time that uh, news outlets like Al Jazeera, uh, news outlets coming out of the Arab world more, more generally, coming out of Turkey as well, obviously, uh, and in general, the Muslim world, um, and even I would say the global South, to, to, to a certain extent, have generally speaking uh, taken a more Palestinian angle on things. And, and, and at the same time, the Western media, the United States, Western Europe, Australia, Canada, um, have basically uh, taken the Israeli position um, and then parroted essentially the talking points of the Israeli military when reporting out what's going on. Um, so um, we've seen this divide and um, and it's, it's not just on the Israel-Palestine issue, it's on many, many other issues. Um, but, but certainly when it comes to Israel-Palestine, there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of another issue where you have diametrically opposing interpretations of almost every single event. You know, on the one hand, Israelis talk about this being a 9-11 for them, which is certainly in, in some sense true. On the other hand, Palestinians talk about this being a genocide for them. You know, how can both sides basically claim victimhood, you know? I mean, this is this is the essence of the Israel-Palestine question. It's that both sides take a diametrically opposing view on literally every single thing that happens. It's that for Israelis, they're the victim. For the Palestinians, they're the victim. And that ha- and, and, and we're not, no matter what the issue is, it could be settlements. Israelis claim that they're the victim. 
You know, that they, they're prevented from, from living in their historic homeland, right? Like, they're the victim, right? And Palestine is like, wait, hold on. The international law forbids a transfer of an occupying power's population onto occupied territory. And so that's just one example, but that's the case with literally every single issue that divides Israelis and Palestinians. And so it's, it's tragic, but it's an information war. It's a war over facts. It's a war over narrative. And I expect that to continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. Right, Zach. So I, I, I think if, if, if we can claim that there is anything to learn at all from, uh, from, from, from events as terrible as the ones that are transpiring right now, is that, um, there is no way to find any kind of resolution as long as we are, uh, divided into camps. Uh, 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 not just, you know, not just, not just physically groups, but divided into discursive camps that are so separated from each other, not just diametrically opposed to each other, but basically just trapped in their own discourse to the extent that the other side becomes completely inaudible or uh, that the discourse is uh, produced specifically to prevent or to 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 hinder communication to make communication impossible to make exchange impossible that uh things can only get worse from there zach uh, zach this has been an extremely instructive conversation and there is so much more to discuss but i'm afraid that we've reached the end of this particular episode of pick voices so thank you so much for being with us today thanks so much for having me my name is David Salem Sayers. We're at the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking. And today we had the pleasure of welcoming Zachary Foster, who gave us much needed context on one of the most hotly debated political issues of the moment, namely the Hamas incursion into Israeli territory on October 7, 2023. If you, our listeners, would like to support Pick Voices or the rest of our nonprofit volunteer work at the Paris Institute, I invite you to become a member of our community. Membership starts from three euros a month and enables free public lectures and courses, open access online journals and podcasts, fair compensation for our course instructors, and everything else that we do at the Paris Institute to create a public space for critical and creative thinking. Membership is easy. Just visit our website at parisinstitute.org. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to challenging you with another episode of Picked Voices soon.